Number five. It's a long one. Thank you for listening. Let's check it out right now. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking out another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole. And I hope everyone's doing okay. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole is a little podcast where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and also my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some stories, interviews and great music for like-minded rock music fans. I will choose from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, as they are stupid, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some tickets, music or merch, or listen to an old favourite album and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people do like to share their opinions these days, please let me know if you think that I've missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I will never check this email address at go fuck yourself forward slash cock goblin. That's cock spelt with a K, and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole podcast or via the website arockandrollrabbithole.com I'd love to hear from you The website also has Spotify playlists of all the songs used in each episode past episodes including the occasional bonus episode that I do and some other golden magic I also have small playlists of the great lesser known artists that I highlight at the end of each episode on the victims tab of the website Please, please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again and here goes. I take one, one, one cause you left me and two, two, two for my family and three, three, three for my heartache. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Appreciate you all taking a bit of your week to climb inside my ears. I had the episode ready to drop, but Melbourne went into another stupid lockdown and I lost a couple of gigs and all the shit that comes with that. So I decided to dig a bit deeper on the topic because the research is a good brain holiday. It's a little bit longer than usual, but it's got some great stories. As always, thanks so much. Please rate and review the podcast. And let's hope this COVID bullshit's gone soon. Anyway, in an unofficial tribute to the title, COVID-19, let's dig in on some positive stuff and some great songs that have a number in the title. Episode 28, Numbers in Titles. So I'll list them in numerical order just to make the editing process much harder for myself. And here we go. So let's start at zero. This song was released on an EP in 1996 and the B-side was a 22-minute medley of 73 songs that didn't make it onto the Smashing Pumpkins record, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And the medley included a couple of other number songs. One was called 77, 
One was called Glasgow 3AM and one was called V8. Zero by Smashing Pumpkins. Just like me. I haven't changed since high school, and suddenly I'm uncool. Uh, I've been kicked out of paradise. I'll never be part of the scene again. Uh-oh. Hey, Cannonball. I like your statement. When life takes a cheap shot at you, you stay on your ground. Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins. Homie Simpson, smiling politely. You know, my kids think you're the greatest. And thanks to your gloomy music, they finally stopped dreaming of a future I can't possibly provide. Well, we try to make a difference. These next two could either go now or way up the end of the podcast, but I'll pop them down here, as they are both double number mentioning songs. Check out the Golden Magic page on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, to see one of the best Aussie film clips ever. Body Jar... One in a million. Sometimes when I'm driving in my car, I wish that you take the wheel, but you're not there. It's so unfair. What if I hit that dog again? Sometimes when I'm lying in my bed, I let those voices in my head influence me to some degree. Now I'm not sure of anything. I wish you knew what I was thinking of. It told me to breathe. It told me to lie down. I figured I'd go one in a million. Cause I'm writing the words down. I think I'm a chance of one in a million. I don't know why. The most successful and exciting hard rock band to emerge in recent years, Guns N' Roses. And his musical talent is undeniable. But by shooting from the hip with lyrics that decry, quote, immigrants, niggers, and faggots in the GNR Lies track One in a Million, Axel got himself in hot water and got his band dumped from an AIDS benefit concert earlier this year. For whatever reason, this week Axel decided to confront the tough questions about those lyrics, as well as talk about the future of his mega band and other more personal matters when he sat down with MTV for a lengthy, in-depth chat. There's a lot of different meanings to that word, but a lot of people just take the time to assume that when a white person uses the word nigger, it's meant that the whole black race and you're derogatory and you're a racist. I don't think people take the time to listen to the third verse and figure that one out because it says radicals and racists don't point your finger at me. 
know, which is, is exactly what happened. We had the Ku Klux Klan saying we're promoting shows and backing the Ku Klux Klan, and they immediately got a letter from my lawyer. You know, because that is not true. So in episode 21's bass intros, we heard an Eagle song with a number in the title, One of These Nights. So instead of playing that again, let's just have a listen to a story about a fight between Glenn Frey and Don Felder. Alan Cranston and his wife are coming around to personally thank every member of the Eagles for doing this. I was very uninformed about politics. I could care less about politics. I didn't even know or care who Alan Cranston was. Senator Cranston went up to Felder and said, I want to thank you. And Felder looked at the senator and said, you're welcome. And then as he was turning away, he said, I guess, I guess, I guess. And Glenn heard it. And I just got really mad. I was drinking a long neck bud and then walked into the tuning room where Walsh and Felder was and took the beer bottle and threw it against the wall and smashed it. I stormed out. I got more mad and more mad. By the time we went on stage, I was seething. I wanted to kill Felder. Thank you again very much from all the Eagles and from Senator Cranston for coming out here and checking it out. A lot of tensions between Glenn and Felder, and the real manifestation of it came that night. Somebody's gonna hurt someone before the night is through. So now we're playing the show and trying to act like everything's okay, and we'll get through a few songs like just keep looking over at him. You ungrateful son of a bitch. The scene there, I really saw how serious it was at that show. They they were fighting on stage. Simsix got audio of it. You're a real pro, Don, all the way. Yeah, you are too, the way you handle people. Except for the people you pay. Nobody gives a shit about it. Fuck you, I've been paying you for seven years, you fuckhead. So we start getting towards the end of the set, and I'm looking at him going, three more songs, asshole. You know, and I'm looking at him, and I am ready to go. I can't wait to get my hands on him. When we get off the stage, I'm going to kick your ass. Whoa, when that kind of stuff is on stage and you're in front of people, you got problems. 
game. We got through the show, and it just all hell broke loose backstage. When the set ended, he was out ahead of me, took his cheapest guitar, busted it in a million pieces, and jumped in his limousine and drove off. And that was it. That was really the straw that broke the camel's back. In episode 21's bass intros, we also heard a cool story about this number-titled nugget too. When we were writing songs for the Master of Puppets album, uh, James came up with the idea, or was talking to me about the idea of what it would be like if you were in this situation where you were basically like a, a sort of living consciousness, like a basket case kind of situation where you were, you know, couldn't reach out and communicate with anyone around you. You had, you know, no arms, no legs, couldn't obviously see, hear, or speak, or anything like that. And um, it was just an idea we had that back then, but never really gotten any further on. So when we were writing songs for the uh, Justice album in the fall of 87, the idea came up again. And one day I was talking to uh, Cliff Bernstein, our manager, about the idea, and he suggested that, um, or said that there was a book uh, called Johnny Got His Gun written by a guy named Dalton Trumbo way back in the, I think, actually late 30s. Um, which was about a, a guy in, in a similar situation, just sort of played against the background of World War One. Peter Mensch, our other manager, told us, which we actually didn't know, that there was a movie of the same name, Johnny Got His Gun, that was obviously based on the book and that Dalton Trumbo had directed himself. And uh, he got a, uh, a version of it. It was actually quite hard to track down, but he got a, a version of it, brought it over to us in England, and we watched it. And um, I think it became pretty apparent, sort of with you know Peter being there and the whole band and so forth, that there was an idea brewing somewhere that could be used for something very, very different and very... Um, you know, very different than what other metal bands had been doing with their videos. And um, we basically looked into it and we got the rights to the movie and so forth. And the idea was born back in September then of last year to uh, basically try and do our first promotional video with us playing the song and using footage from this movie somehow and try and, and really make it work like that over the next few months and see how far we could take it.
an album that I think I have featured most songs off is Counting Crows, August and Everything After. And the last song on the record is a number titled song, A Murder of One. And this is the song where the band got their name from. The intro has always reminded me of another great song, Cindy Lauper's Money Changes Everything. One came at a time in our band when things were very difficult for us in the studio and it, it sort of kept us together. We hold on to that song quite tightly when we play it, you know, we kind of hold on to it. Could you just explain though to your, your viewers that if they do love that song, please don't get married to it um, because it's a, very, it's a bitter and twisted lyric, you know. It's a song about, you know, people, t you know, tearing each other apart and it's a song about transcending that, yes but it's like a, a lover's argument more than anything else. But I'm always amazed when people say, well, I got married to that song. I just think, whoa. You know, I mean, either it's a, it's a brilliant sign uh, and you've come through a lot. Um, but I shouldn't really say that because, you know, and I think this is the thing, thing that lyricists should know, and I should know, is that the people finish the songs for you and, 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 and their meaning is as important as, as yours, so I actually don't want to try and force that way. So could you just rewind all that stuff I just said? And just so marry away. <laughs>
We heard this next one way back in episode one's building intros, and I'm going to pop it in here again just for its pure rock pop golden nuggetry. I still can't believe how good this guitar intro is from the great man Dave Leslie and how getting stuck on a single bass note for over a minute can be a god with one single note deviation before the drums drop. You can check out Livewire by ACDC for two minutes of single bass note magic. Anyway, here's the baby animals with their tune to E-flat, one minute ten of an A-bass-noted glory of one word. read in that song you know you said there's a, a sort of a nod to bruce springsteen i think the line is she said she said it's cold like independence day and another is uh turn the engine but the engine wouldn't turn do i yeah. have that right yeah those were i mean i think I, that was brought up recently that's followed me around for quite some time i always thought it was somewhat humorous that people were stumped by uh what they thought was illogical that it would be cold and uh on independence day but um you know, and that's one of Bruce Springsteen's greatest songs. And it's, uh, you know, it's always his song, Independence Day, you know, about breaking free and getting away uh, and independence. It really has nothing to do with the 4th of July. Right. And that's, uh, you know, it, but it, I always found it somewhat humorous. That, because that's how I hear everything. I hear everything and assume that I'm either misunderstanding it, getting it wrong, or I need to, you know, think a little 
think a little more, but I rarely think things are exactly what I'm hearing. So I was always surprised that people were stumped by that line. It made sense to me. <laughs> well, it's interesting yeah, but, to hear that, uh, that, that Bruce, I, uh, I've read that he, you know, he was definitely an inspiration to you. Um, and, uh, you, you actually got to perform, I think you performed that song at an award show or something. Yeah, we did a long time ago. Um, uh, uh, geez, I can't remember which year, 97, 98, 99 around there. Um, I can't remember if it was an MTV award show or VH1 award show back when they did those kind of things. But, yeah. um, yeah, he, um, he, he came and sang with us, which was, you know, quite a thrill for me and the band. of course Jacob Dylan talking about the Wallflowers number mentioning One Headlight, a song that made it to number two in the US. Speaking of number two, let's move on to number two. Who does number two work for? That's right, buddy. You show that turn who's boss. Feels just like a beat up truck. I turn the engine, but the engine doesn't turn. What sounds a cheap so our first number two song is a beautiful Ryan Adams song that I hope the chorus line, It Takes Two When It Used To Take One, is not about your girlfriend. Ryan Adams, two. If you take me back, back to your place, I'll try not to bother, I promise, cause it's cold in me. And I wish it was hard The sink's broken, it's leaking from the faucet And I'm back there From the faucet And I want to go home It takes two and it used to take one We featured song two by Blur in an earlier episode, so another two song is The Two of Us by The Beatles. This is a happy song I've always loved, as my little brain always thought that the relationship between John and Paul may have been stretched at this time, and singing this harmony together, I imagine, would have been fun in an old school way for them. And researching this, I found some fun outtakes that may confirm that. Getting nowhere On our way Back to you 
on our way home. We're on our way home. We're going home. I'm sorry, I fear. It's still hard to believe that Paul was about 28 and John was about 30 when the Beatles split. Next up is a song Bob Marley wrote about the joy birds gave him that visited his home in this uplifting number titled Three Little Birds. Double-pointed nugget is crowded houses, four seasons in one day. Are you in good voice tonight? In the mood for a bit of a sing? Good. Well, I'm going to do a song now which I wrote in Melbourne. It's about Melbourne. It's for Melbourne, and it's here tonight in the Festival Hall. Four seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below Sun shines on the black clouds hanging over the domain Even when you're feeling warm The temperature could drop away Like four seasons in one day Smiling as the shit comes down you can tell a man from what he has to say Everything gets turned around And I will risk my neck again, again You can take me where you will Up the creek and through the mill Like all the things you can explain seasons in one day Next up is a great number song from a classic Aussie album from 1980. One of the best prison ballads ever. Cold Chisels, Four Walls. Well, they're calling time for exercise Around the Majesty's Hotel And the middle holds a room up While I'm gone 
Headlight by the Wallflowers earlier, and my favourite song from that same album, Bringing Down the Horse, is also a number titled Gem that Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers played slide guitar on. Mike Campbell said this of the song. And I, quote, I really like the guitar line in there. It was very George Harrison sounding, and I was real proud of it when I got the sound in the studio, so I was glad they used it. The funny thing is, later, when I ran into George, He had a real whimsical, cynical kind of thing. He looked at me and he goes, you know I heard that record on the radio, you're doing me now? And chuckled. I have always loved the film clip for this song, which was made from hundreds of black and white photos. Adam Juritz from The Counting Crows sings backing vocals in this track, and the cafe in the film clip was actually on Fifth Avenue. Sixth Avenue Heartache by The Wallflowers. covered Seven Nation Army way back in episode five's Colours of the Mexican Flag. So to represent the number seven is the first single from this huge act to enter the UK singles chart. Freddie Mercury and his sister had a childhood fantasy land when they lived on Zanzibar. They called the land Rye and Freddie mentions it in Lily of the Valley. This song was the first song they played on Top of the Pops in Britain, The Seven Seas of Rye by Queen. Very souls you unbelievers. 
a bit of a side rabbit hole on Seven Seas of Rye. The intro is featured as a one minute-ish outro on Queen 1. Then the song in full is the last track on Queen 2, which fades out with a crowd singing, I do like to be beside the seaside. The crowd noise and someone whistling, I do like to be beside the seaside, start off Queen's third album, Sheer Heart Attack. We're now up to number eight. Just go through it anyway if it makes me make mistakes to, just to practice it. <laughs> Try to remember, John. If I don't, well, it's just too bad in it? Okay. Is it just me and you? One, two, three, four. <laughs> Ringo tap along, George just sussed the chords, and then George Martin would go, oh, nice, it was marvellous. It would take about 20 minutes to do that. George, what did it sound like with the bass doing a funny thing? Did it sound any good or did it sound just a lovely crap? While we are chatting about the Beatles, they have an 8 minute and 15 second art noise piece on the White Album called Revolution Number 9. Number 9, number 9, number 9, number 9. Paul and producer George Martin hated it and tried to have it left off the album and I must admit that I've listened to the album a hundred times and I've never got the whole way through it. It is the longest track that the Beatles ever put on an album. I do like to pop the occasional song in the podcast that is a bit off the rock track, but I will include it if it's a song that simply makes me smile. I gotta get one more of your big hits in here, nine to five, of the story of being on the set of the movie that of course you were starring in and having to write this song but not being able to really sort of play your guitar and do all the things you'd normally <laughs> do and tapping it out a little bit on a desk or something. No, I did it on my fingernails. Oh, on Can the nails. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you can hear that or not. Can you hear that? Sure. Anyway, it sounded like a typewriter, and I didn't have my guitar because I didn't want to get too too scattered because we were trying to stay in the in the mood, and they were doing lights and all that. So I would just look around, and I would just get ideas, watching whatever was going on on the set. So it was about women in the workplace, so I would just kind of do my, you know, a tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen or working nine to five, and I would just kind of play my little... Fingers go back to the hotel at night, write down the words and or get my guitar and start singing it. But that's kind of how that all works. And then I played my nails on the real record just for fun because all the girls got a kick out of me singing it to them, <laughs> going around. Even Jane and Lily to this day, every time they see me, they start going, you know, we all do. like that. you got to have acrylic nails, though, which I don't think either of them do. So they're not, they don't play it as good as I do. <laughs> Here's the double number titled Amazingly Catchy Melody. Grammy Award winning US number one of nine to five. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a Service and devotion, you would think that I would deserve 
have a song for the number 10 but here's a great song from the classic midnight oil album 10987654321 a great anticipating building intro into an energetic rocker the album only made it to number three in the australian charts but stayed in the charts here for 171 weeks which is over three years and if you're shit at maths that's nearly 1200 days which is a lot only the strong by midnight oil fact about Midnight Oil's album 10987654321 or 10 to 1 on some of the early pressings including my copy as well as Diamond Dogs by David Bowie and Sgt Peppers and some other records the last note on the album actually runs into the run out groove on the vinyl so if your turntable doesn't have an auto return that note holds forever and on this album it happens on the song somebody's trying to tell me something with the final line breaking me down jump over to my Instagram a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast and I'll pop up a small film of it such a great record 
Actually, cancel what I said about not having a 10 song. Here's Motley Crue's elevated jizz-fueled, friend-telling, homemade threesome porn selling to the kids at the train station rock of 10 Seconds to Love. fair way into the episode and only up to number 10 but number 11 until the end is a bit of a quicker downhill fall so i'm just going to deviate from the normal podcast format as two of my good buddies have just released some great new music first up is my buddy jody who is an indie pop artist from sydney who works her ass off and she's just released a great single called blink which i wish was out when i did episode six's f-bombs you can follow jody on instagram jody artist J-O-D-I-A-R-T-I-S-T and a little weird underscore after that. Very cool vibe and Jody's got such a great voice. Let's have a listen to Jody's new song, Blink. You really fucked things up for me When you texted me last week It's not like I wanted to 
Second up is a Melbourne band called The Bits. Not only is the album great, but a few songs also qualify for this episode. The Bits are a great fun straight up rock band that have ex-body jar drummer Ross Hetherington tapping the tubs and on occasional vocals. And here's a bit of their song, One in a Million Chance. Head over to the website arockandrollrabbithole.com and check out the Victims tab. I have a link to Jody's single Blink and I'll also pop up the whole album from the bits which is called Rum Springer. For those of you playing along at home, I mentioned in episode 5 that I loved an Irish folk album from the Furies called When You Were Sweet 16. The title song, When You Were Sweet 16, was written and published in 1898 by English vaudevillian performer James Thornton, so we can forgive him for the slightly non-PC lyrics and take it for what it is, a beautiful love song written for his wife and sung by her at the time. The version I'm using went to number one in Ireland and to number 14 in the UK in 1981, When You Were Sweet 16 by The Furies and Davy Arthur. When first I saw the love light in your eyes I thought the world held not but joy for me And even though we've drifted far apart I never dreamed but what I dreamed I love you as I've never loved before Since first I saw you on the village green Come to me in my dreams of love alone I love you as I loved you when you are sweet When you are sweet Sixteen So just some ancient chart history about when you were sweet sixteen. 
The first recorded version was released in April 1900 by Jer Mahoney and was number one for five weeks and weirdly was also released in November of the same year by George J. Gaskin and that went to number one for eight weeks. J.W. Myers also released it in 1901, so did Harry McDonough. I googled record sales in 1900 and was surprised to find that in the US it was estimated that about 3 million records were sold that year. And they were all singles as vinyl could only hold up to about 3 minutes worth of music per side. I couldn't find numbers for when you were Sweet 16 sales in 1900. Before 1948 and the invention of the 12 inch, 33 and a third RPM vinyl record, most records were boxes of singles. Anyway, enough vinyl history. Here's the oldest recording I could find of When You Were Sweet 16 from 1901 by Harry McDonough. Sweet 16, sung by Harry McDonough. When first I saw the love light in your eyes And heard your voice like sweetest melody Speak words of love to my enraptured soul The world had naught but joy in store for me down like 16 is followed by 17. I mentioned a Body Jar tune earlier, and this one is a cracking rock tune. 17 Years by Body Jar. titled song. The lyrics were written by Stevie Nicks about the death of her uncle and John Lennon. Tell me about Edge of 17 because I mean making Belladonna, this is your debut album, you were, you've been in Fleetwood Mac, you made an album that is now in the top 10 albums of all time as well as your other you know, huge telling albums. How scared were you to make that album to start off with? Well I wasn't really scared, I was really happy because I had finally, you know, gotten through to Fleetwood Mac about the fact that I was not going to break up Fleetwood Mac. I was not leaving the band. I just simply needed a vehicle. Mm. I had a lot of songs that had not been used 
for five years from 75 up until 1980 and I and I just wanted to use some of those songs so that I could actually start writing again and move on from there once I convinced them and you know that I was not going anywhere they were actually fine with it so all I really had to do was get a producer I got Jimmy Iovine um, Tom Petty gave me Stop Dragging My Heart Around so all of a sudden I was meeting all these great new people that were outside of Fleetwood Mac which was really fun for me and really you know like my world was growing at that point and um, so going in to make the record was totally a kick and it was really fun and happened fast it wasn't a labor you know it was easy and it proved a lot to everybody that I could do both that was really the for me that was the best thing about Belladonna yeah and you mentioned Tom Petty who stopped dragging my heart around as an incredible um, track and beautifully done and he but also his, his wife song. kind of inspired uh, Edge of Seventeen the name. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I ask her. Yeah, because that's how when they met, they were 17. Right. right. And also the death she of John. She said the age of 17 because oh, she's had such a, such a southern accent. You know, she's like the age of 17. And I'm like, the edge of 17. You met Tom on the edge of 17. And she goes, no, I met him at the age of 17. I'm like, no, no, we're changing it now. It's gone from age, age to edge. And yeah, so and that was it. That's your inspirational moment. You know, people say, what inspires you to write a song? That was the inspiration. I misheard line. Yeah. Yeah, and also, of course, then, you know, you've got Bootalicious. <laughs> Come, like the, the track comes out and they use the sample of the guitar out of this and from what I hear, I think you've told me, I interviewed you once before, you get 50% of the royalties for Booty Delicious. It's half mine. Wow. Absolutely. That, you know, the gift that keeps on giving. Exactly. in the Vietnam War and he came home but he came home a different person uh, just you know mentally and and as I'm sure everyone did who who came home from from that debacle um, and uh, my he was he was the brother that basically raised me my dad had wasn't around he was had gone when I was two 
and I would see him a couple times a year, uh, but it didn't have the same impact as as having a, a father figure there every day. So my brother Rick was that father figure, and when he went to Vietnam, I was I want to say seven years old. Uh, came back when I was nine, and you could tell life was just different. And it was not as a nine year old kid couldn't put his finger on what it was. It just was different, and it was heartbreaking. And so, cut to we're writing songs for the record, and I told Rachel that I have this idea for this story about my brother, and we just could not get it right. So we decided to change the storyline to create like sort of like this fictional storyline based around you know uh, some factual uh, stories of just uh, the loss of a, of a friend to inadvertent. Uh, you know, gunshot, um, and what role you know alcohol may have played in that. Um, we didn't want it to be a statement per se. It was more of it was a story. And again, you don't know who it's going to touch and to what degree if if it in fact does. And you know, to this day, seeing people sing the lyrics to that song. And still hearing people say it had such a, uh, a profound effect on me because I lost somebody like that to an errant gunshot uh, or uh, something similar to that story. Um, you know, it's, some, it's tragic. Um, and hopefully by people being able to relate to that song, maybe it gave them some comfort in knowing that, you know, they're again, they're not alone. This song had a huge impact on on me because at that moment there was a kid who actually shot his dad in Idaho, you know, in a small town in Idaho, you don't see that kind of stuff very often. Yeah, right. It's a little small town, it's pretty safe. And so when this song came out, it almost told a similar story. You know, Rachel's a better lyricist than me. So we were bouncing ideas off of one another and then he would come across, he would somehow take the pieces of these puzzles and start putting them together. We obviously, we both collaborated on it, but he would be the one to come up with one of those lyrics that you just went, wow, like that's stop dead in your tracks. Uh, powerful. We just, you, you don't know. I can't reiterate that enough. You don't know. You're writing a song in the bedroom of someone's parents' house. And at that time it was Rachel's parents' house. We we're you know writing it in a bedroom upstairs and you finish it. And you play it for people like John and Richie and these people who had, uh, that we respected their opinion. Uh, they were so revered uh, to us uh, because of their honesty, because of their success. Like, they had a pretty good idea of what a good song was. <laughs> and so, and they would hear that and they went, this is, this is where, this is good. This is better than good, in their opinion. This is where this is where your music needs to be. And so cut to uh, 1989 in, in the spring, summer of 89. And all of a sudden, you know, it's getting more and more plays on MTV. And, and you're seeing more and more people show up at the shows and sing, sing the lyrics to the song. 18 in Life by Skid Row.
nearly through the teens now, and the last stop is a number 19 with a UK number one and a US number two from 1966. The singer wrote the lyrics during the band's 1965 US tour, 19th Nervous Breakdown by the Rolling Stones. song is a 20 titled Aussie song from 2007 which reached number four in Australia. It also reached number 17 in New Zealand which is probably between 17 and 20 singles sold. Sorry New Zealand folk. That joke was payback for Russell Crowe's 30 odd foot of grunts turning up several times in my research for this episode. Here's a solo piano version of 20 Good Reasons by Thirsty Merck. He said love hurts I wrote that book I climbed that wall I had one look But you just came around To say hello The streets were filled With guilty hearts And here was I right from the everything when I lost you so tell me
Next up is a great singer and super catchy rocker of 21st Century Digital Boy by Bad Religion. I can't believe it. The way you look sometimes Like a trampled flag on a city street Oh yeah And I don't want it The things you're offering me Civilized barcode quick ID Oh yeah Cause I'm a 21st century had a great prison song earlier with Cold Chisel's Four Walls, and here's Johnny Cash's Countdown to an Execution, sung at Folsom Prison in 1968. The song was actually written by a child's author named Shel Silverstein. 25 minutes to go, Johnny Cash. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell, and I've got 25 minutes to go. And the whole town's waiting just to hear me yell I got 24 minutes to go Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal But 23 minutes to go But nobody asked me how I feel I got 22 minutes to go well, I sent for the governor and the whole darn bunch with 21 minutes to go. And I called up the mayor, but he's out to lunch. I got 20 more minutes to go. Then the sheriff said, boy, I'm going to watch you die with 19 minutes to go. So I laughed in his face and I spit in his eye. With 18 minutes to go Now here comes the preacher for to save my soul With 13 minutes to go And he's talking about burning but I'm so cold 12 more minutes to go Well they're testing the trap and it chills my spine 11 more minutes to go and the trap and the rope, all oh, they work just fine. <laughs> Ten more minutes to go. Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free. With nine more minutes to go. But this ain't the movies, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. With my feet on the trap and my head in the noose. Five more minutes to go Won't somebody come and cut me loose Seven more minutes to go I can see the mountains, I can see the sky But three more minutes to go And it's too darn pretty for a man to want to die Two more minutes to go I can see the buzzards, I can hear the crows One more minute to go And now I'm 
swinging and here I go. Here's Brian May. It's about a man who goes off with, I suppose that's obvious, I'm not sure if it's obvious or not, but he, he goes off time travelling, well he goes off um, space travelling, because he goes around in a circle very fast, he, he, he suffers a special, uh, a general relativistic effect, which means that when he comes back he's, he's been away a hundred years, but he's only a year older, so that's what the song was about, sort of love song set in, in that uh, context. <laughs> And it came out for some reason like a Skiffle song. It came out very quickly. I remember just strumming a guitar and, and the words came mostly. It's a science fiction song. You always feel like the person who's singing it sings it in a different way from what you would. But you can't do nothing about it. And Freddie sings much better than I do, but in some cases I would feel, ah, you know, the, the original meaning of the song doesn't get across. Now, when I became aware of this, I would try and design the song so that it had a wider meaning, knowing that it would change when it's done in front of an audience. We were all desperately um, scribbling away at the time. You know, we had a very high output, each of us separately, and there was a big struggle to sort of find out which things would go on the album. And it was a time of great release for us because we just almost had to sort of give up hope because we got into such terrible management um, problems and we were totally broke. We were on the verge of disappearing because we were so much in debt, we were so much in trouble with all this contractual stuff with the, with the management company. We couldn't even get to our record company because the contracts had us sealed off. Um, so it was life or death, and we, we went to John Reed, who was Elton's manager at that time. John Reed says, I'll fix your troubles for you. You go and make the best album anyone's ever heard. And so it was life or death, make or break. And the night at the opera thing, somehow we just entered with such joy with all those ingredients that we had um, and went for it. And I think, yes, it is a, a sort of pillar of of a breakthrough into, into the world at large. We had this insane belief in ourselves, really. From the beginning, we had this confidence that we had something so special that it would get through in the end. Um, I think in the early days, it, it was really hard to hold onto that, you know. I think the whole album was something very special and there were so many explorations in different directions and a lot of heart as well. I think sometimes Queen have been perceived by the, the media as something rather cold and calculating but you can see if you look at it carefully in the albums a lot of vulnerability and a lot of risk and some of the stuff is... Um, is very naked, you know, it's us really exposing our feelings and emotions in, in quite a direct way. 39 by Queen. Ships sail down into the blue. 
40, a U2 song that I love, and they have closed 412 concerts with that song between February 83 and October 2016. The Edge plays bass and Adam Clayton plays guitar on it live, and it has one of the greatest end-of-concert walk-off crowd sing-alongs ever. Getting it. There you go. Well, it's actually a 46 chromosomes and an X or a Y. That's what the two is about. Not necessarily 48 chromosomes. It's 46 and an X or a Y. Which would be 47. A 48 with then the other two Ys would be a horrible mutation. And it would not be two Ys. Probably worse than our point. And it would be probably bordering on hermaphrodite. 
<laughs> the title of the song, 46 and 2, comes from a fantastical, relatively disprovable concept. Nevertheless, Tool wrote about said concept out of a desire to simply find new ways to look at things. I ask that we put aside all prejudices about the figures being discussed and pry open our third eyes. According to Carl Jung, the shadow refers to the dark, undesirable aspect of our unconscious mind. If we recognize traits within our souls that we do not like, we push them down into unconsciousness, into our shadow. For instance, in order to become civilized, we will sacrifice our animal instincts towards violence and selfishness. In order to socialize effectively, we might hide certain interests in esoteric or taboo subjects. Those instincts and interests, regardless if they are good or bad, fall into the shadow. While it makes sense to do this for the sake of order, Jung proposes that repressing these traits is not an ideal- I'm just gonna cut you off there, Professor. I have no idea what you're talking about. up we have a number titled song with a super famous drum groove a number one single in the u.s in 1975 although he only mentions five ways here's a song i could have easily put in last week's seven up episode with the eight syllabled 50 ways to leave your lover by paul simon
problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. She said it's really not my habit to intrude. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued. But I'll repeat myself. At the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 ways to leave your lover. You just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Or hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free. Slip out the back, Jack Make a new plan, stand You don't need to be coy, Roy You just listen to me Hop on the bus, Gus You don't need to discuss much Just drop off the key, Lee And get yourself free 53rd and 3rd in New York City was a very famous um, chicken hawk corner where if you wanted to go pick up a boy prostitute, you would drive up to 53rd and 3rd, and they'd all be standing on the street. Dee wrote a song about turning tricks there. Dee Dee, what, what, you know, 53rd and 3rd, what, what's the true story behind 53rd and 3rd? There's lots of rumors. I'd rather bypass that, you know. These rumors, like, nobody's really giving me, like, a fair chance at, like, what is real and what is fantasy, and everybody always blows up the negative. You know, like, people try to make me out like I was, like, some rough character. I was just a bass player in the Ramones, you know. They should take a look at themselves, you know. Obviously, 53rd and 3rd by the Ramones. The bit that DD sings, and I, quote, I took out my razor blade and did what God forbade, isn't the only murder in a song on the corner of 53rd and 3rd in 1976. Also, in one of my all time favourite songs, The Killing of Georgie by Rod Stewart, which is the song I also steal that little and I quote from, and I quote, Georgie is also murdered on that corner, which is a true story. Inside street came a New Jersey gang with just one aim to roll some innocent passerby. There ensued a fearful fight, screams rung out in the night. George's head in a sidewalk cornerstone. Another kid, a switchblade knife, who did not intend to take his life, he just pushed his luck a little too far that night. Dispersed the gang, a crowd gathered, the police came, an ambulance screamed to a halt on 53rd and 3rd. 
I don't know if Rod would have heard the Ramones song or vice versa. As Rod Stewart recorded A Night on the Town between December 75 and April 76, and it was released in June 76. The first Ramones album was recorded in February 76 and released in April 76. George's life and but I ask who really cares? George once said to me, and I quote, he said, never wait or hesitate. Get in, get before it's too late. You may never get another chance. Cause youth's a mask, but it don't last. Live it long and live it fast. Georgie was a friend of mine. Just to justify playing The Killing of Georgie, it does have a number in the title because it's Killing of Georgie Part 1 and Part 2, and that was the end of Part 1. The only song in the episode that mentions the same number in the title twice. It sounds like it's from 1967, but it's from 2007. I saw this band live and they were incredible. Sadly, the great singer passed away in 2016. Sharon Jones, a powerful soul and blues singer who achieved fame in midlife and returned to touring this year after fighting cancer, has died. NewsHour Weekend's Christopher Booker has more. Out in front was her voice, a master's class in soul, rhythm and blues and funk. Born in Georgia, raised in Brooklyn in the Baptist Church, she was part Aretha Franklin, part James Brown, and all Sharon Jones. I never took vocal lessons, just practicing and I guess building up my, my lungs to be a singer. But it was a voice, if not for will and determination, that was nearly overlooked. Jones sang in wedding bands, but spent years making a living as an armored guard for Wells Fargo and a corrections officer at Rikers Island. But in 1996, at the age of 40, she met a bass player named Gabe Roth, who was forming a new record label, Daptone. From that meeting, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings would record six albums celebrating and reinventing a sound thought lost to the digital world. She received Grammy nominations and influenced singers like Amy Winehouse and Adele. In 2013, she began her fight against pancreatic cancer, returning to the stage the following year after her treatment. Sharon Jones was 60 years old. 100 Days, 100 Nights by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. 100 days, 100 nights, no one man. great Aussie on tour Distance From Home song by the Hoodoo Gurus. I have always adored this song, A Thousand Miles Away by the Hoodoo Gurus. Or being an Aussie, it should be 1,609.34 kilometres away.
Estimated time of arrival, 9.30 a.m. Been up before the sun and now I'm tired before I even begin. Now you're flying. I got so much work in front of me. Really flying. It stretches out far as the eye can see. I can see Spend half my life in airports Doing crosswords or attempting to sleep And when the bar is open Then you'll often find the warming a seat Now you're flying I never find a place where I can stay Really flying rather be a thousand miles away thousand miles away was the last song written for Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And um, as the story goes, um, the idea had been kicking around for a while. It didn't have any words, except, I believe, Shakedown 1979. <laughs> it's always the one line. And, um, and uh, we really were getting down to the end of the album, and uh, there really wasn't a lot of time left. And uh, we were sort of checking the list to see of the songs that we still had to work on. And uh, Flood, who was producing the album, I said, I really think this song has a lot of potential. And he said, well, you've got basically 24 hours to make it happen. So either come in here tomorrow and make this song happen, or or it's it's not going to be on the album. So I went home that night, and um, I spent that night and the next morning writing the lyrics. I did a demo at home. And I came the next day, and we, and we did an acoustic version um, with a slightly different arrangement, but basically the same song. And... Um, you know, it's just one of those moments where you just know that the song is a special song. And um, I can't really say why I picked the year 1979. I mean, it's as good as any other year, I suppose. Um, plus, it sounds good in a rhyme scheme. But um, sometimes when I write a song, I see a picture in my head. For some reason, it's a sort of an obscure memory that I have. And, and the memory that I had for this particular song was I was about 18 years old, and I was driving down the... Um, down the road near my home and it was really heavily raining as only it can seem to rain in a gloomy way in, in, in Illinois and um, and I remember just sitting at a traffic light and um, and uh, that's the memory and I don't know why that memory sort of stayed but that's the memory that I wrote the song from that sort of feeling of um, sitting in a car at a traffic light <laughs> I know it doesn't sound very glamorous but it, it emotionally connotates for me sort of feeling of waiting for something to happen and um, 
not being quite there yet, but but the, but it's just around the corner. And uh, little did I know that I was right. So um, this is 1979. nostalgic lyric song that I've always loved from 1995 with 2000 in the title. The song is about a real person called Deborah Bone who was a girl a singer fancied as a child but he could never impress her so they remained friends until her death from cancer in 2014. Such a great story lyric in this pop nugget Disco 2000 by Pulp. Just a quick side rabbit hole on Disco 2000. I've always heard a little bit of Elton John's Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting and also Gloria by Laura Brannigan. Oh, 
Thanks for hanging in for a long one. The next tune is another 2000 titled song, which was a futuristic song written in 1967 by Mick and Keith for the Stones record, their Satanic Majesty's Request. That album actually has two songs on it that have the number 2000 in the title, 2000 Light Years From Home and 2000 Man. Mick wrote the lyrics for 2000 Light Years From Home when he was in prison in June 1967 on a drug charge. 2000 Man was also covered by Kiss on their Dynasty, or Dynasty, depending on where you live, album in 1979 with a cool vocal by Ace. Written in 1967, the song has some interesting, prophetic, jerking-off-to-a-computer-style lyrics. And let's hear the Kiss version, 2000 Man. Well, my name is a number, it's on a So quite a jump in numbers now from 2000 right up to a million, but I need to put an end to this episode somehow. A debut single from Melbourne band's debut album from 1997, the album also has a number in the title, Elsewhere for 8 Minutes. 
I googled the shit out of the album title as I remember it had a story behind it. Something like it's the amount of time the Earth would have to survive if the sun exploded, but I can't confirm that story. Anyway, here's the three bars of 6-4, then one bar of 4-4. Missed in episode one's building intro episode, also missed in episode 20, brackets of frustration, glory of something for Kate's, captain, bracket, million miles an hour, bracket. Let's take a short break and quickly recap the magic before I get to my favourite number titled song. Thousand miles away. 
So that's the last of the songs that have a number in the title before I get to my favourite. But I like to add an interesting, funny or cool story about one of the songs or artists in each episode. And in this episode, I'm going to be a little bit morbid only because I've been stuck in a Ramones rabbit hole for a few weeks and have totally been rekindling my love for them. The four Ramones who played on their classic self-titled debut album, DD, Johnny, Joey and Tommy Ramone, did a signing at the Virgin Megastore in New York City on July 20th, 1999, along with longtime drummer Marky Ramone and their last bass player, CJ Ramone. The Ramones also had another drummer, Richie Ramone from 83 to 87, and Elvis Ramone briefly in 87. Elvis Ramone's other name is Clem Burke, who's the Blondie drummer. And I think I mentioned in episode 10 that I met him at an airport in South America and got to speak to him for an hour or so, which was awesome. The Ramones had called it a day and played their last show in Hollywood on August 6, 1996. Anyway, back to the Virgin Megastore in New York City in 1999, where all four original members of the band were alive. And then fast forward just five years and three of the guys had sadly passed away. To cancer claims the life of punk rocker Joey Ramone, a New Yorker whose music got a generation on its feet. We thank you for staying up late with us this Easter Sunday. Good evening, everybody. I'm Vince Dimitri. And I'm Amanda Grove. Even if the Ramones didn't make your kind of music, many of today's biggest names in entertainment are missing the man from Queens who became famous as Joey Ramone. He inspired Bruce Springsteen to write one of his biggest hits called Hungry Heart, and Ramone even made a fan of novelist Stephen King. CBS2 reporter Sukanya Christian was out tonight talking to fans and friends. The message on one candle outside CBGB's red simply thanks joey he saved the music scene actually the ramones hit the music scene in 1974 changing the music we listen to from disco to punk joey ramone was born jeffrey hyman may 19th 1951 he was a boy from forso queens the front man of the ramones a tall gangly lead singer whose signature yelp leather jacket tinted glasses and permanently torn jeans became a uniform of a generation. Joey Ramone had been battling lymphoma for several years now. He was hospitalized recently for the last three months. According to Arturo Vega, the band's artistic director, Joey was coherent until the very end. I seriously think he was conscious until the end. I think that this afternoon he was aware of who was there and why we were there. Disbanded in 1996 after a tour. Since then, Joey kept a low profile. But for his friends tonight, his legacy lives on. How are you? I'm John Norris with MTV News here on MTVU. Johnny Ramone, legendary guitar player for the Ramones, died in his sleep in Los Angeles on Wednesday afternoon. Tommy Ramone, the last surviving original member of the group, told MTV News that his former bandmate was, quote, born to be a rock star and was a, quote, very important person in his life. Safe to say, he was an important person in ours as well. Pioneering punk rock guitarist Johnny Ramone has died after a long battle with prostate cancer at the age of 55. If the Ramones invented punk rock, man, they did, then Johnny Ramone, born John Cummings, was the man who created punk's thrashing locomotive guitar style. Johnny's death follows the passing of Joey Ramone in 2001 and Dee Dee Ramone in 2002. The band is gone forever, but the music may never die. My expectations were to be the biggest band in the world. That was my expectations. <laughs> Anything other than that would be unacceptable. And then finally, Tommy Ramone passed away on July 11th, 2014. 
Marky, CJ and Clem Burke are all still alive and playing. Decked out in leather jackets and long black mops of hair, the Ramones hit the music scene in 1974, rocking out legendary New York clubs like CBGB's. Despite receiving little commercial airplay at the time, the band has been credited with heavily influencing modern music with songs like I Wanna Be Your Boyfriend and Rockaway Beach. Tommy was born Erdelai Tamas in Hungary and was originally only supposed to be the group's manager. But when co-founder and drummer Joey Ramone struggled to keep up with the band's increasingly fast tempos, he handed the sticks to Tommy. The Ramones eventually split up in 1996, though they later appeared several times together in public. Their hit songs, I Wanna Be Sedated and Blitzkrieg Bop, among others, earned them an induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. It was one of the last things we talked about, and it was very important to them. I, I give great thanks that, that, that we were inducted for, for, for Joey, definitely. Tommy was the last surviving member of the band's original lineup. He was 62. So my favourite number-titled song is from this band's self-titled second album, not their self-titled debut album. Their third album is also self-titled, but this song is the opening track from the album from 2011 I called Bling. This band is a sort of fully-fledged side project from their other band called The Bronx, who have four albums out, all self-titled. Not confusing at all. This is one of my favourite songs of theirs, with a great vocal and funny story about a guy with four ladies on the go, which is three less than Glenn Fry had in Take It Easy. So my favourite song with a number in the title is 48 Roses by Mariachi Al Bronx. And if you're a bass player or a bass fan, check out the weird, shouldn't work linear bass line that absolutely makes the song groove. It's so good. Rock band known as the Bronx. This fall they're on tour of the Foo Fighters and tonight they're making their television debut as their alter ego here to perform a song from their self-titled album, Mariachi El Bronx. Please welcome Mariachi El Bronx.
Thanks again for listening and thanks to Paddy Cummings for web and tech help and Rob Dean at Strike First Studios for the stupid podcast songs too. And as always, if you want to tell me what I missed, got wrong or could do better in this free podcast that took me a few full weeks to scrape together, meet me at Woolworths in Box Hill at 6pm on Monday and wear a mask. Now seriously, say hi on Facebook or Instagram, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. And check out the website for all the past episodes and Spotify playlist of all the great songs used in each episode. And check out Jody and the bits on the Victims tab of the website. Also, if you have a spare second, please rate and review the podcast. That would be super appreciated. At the end of each episode, I want to add, when I can, an example of the episode's topic. And for this episode, I'm going to use two examples. One was earlier with the bits, one in a million chance. And for the second example, here's a song by a Melbourne singer, guitarist, band driver, gig pig, music shop assistant, beard manicure, won't visit me during a lockdown despite being less than a kilometre away. G'day mating, all round nice guy. I had a pile of shit to drop on this guy, as I know he doesn't know what a podcast is, but I will be kind as he may work it out in the future when iPhones make it up to iPhone 30 or whatever and they do everything for you. As I know, pushing a few buttons can be tough. With a song that is 40% less time than Sharon Jones' 100 Days and is 0.644% less time than Body Jar's 17 Years, but I'm sure that 40 days is a long time when your day are winters. Check out the Victims tab on the website and I'll make a Spotify list of some of Dale's great tunes. Thanks again, guys. See ya.
Oh, oh, oh.